You're listening to the Almost 30 Podcast. It's Lindsay Simpson and Krista Williams. Hey guys. Oh, what's okay. up? <laughs> welcome. So happy you're here. Welcome, welcome to the Almost 30 Podcast. Thanks for being here. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Um, thanks so much for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. And if you are a part of Almost 30 Nation, welcome back. We love you. We love you. For the people that are new, Almost 30 Podcast is a podcast about navigating life's transitions, talking all of the things, keeping it real, and having fun along the way. So much fun. Uh, So this week, we have on Sarah Vermont. She is the founder of Careergasm and the author of Careergasm, Find Your Way to Feel Good Work. She is a badass. So she serves no bullshit career advice for folks at Forbes, Entrepreneur, Fortune, and a bunch of other cool places. Um, So we wanted to have her on to tell us all the things about career. So for the people that are just starting their career, what advice would you give? Um, For the people that want to be an entrepreneur, how exactly do you do that? What does it look and feel like? For the people that want to quit their fucking jobs, we also talk about that. So we wanted to educate, enlighten, and kind of talk a little bit more about careers and get all of the information and advice from someone that is fun, interesting, and amazing. And if you want to work with Sarah or want to learn a little bit more about Careergasm, go to careergasm.com. We know you'll love this episode, so let us know what you think. Enjoy. Enjoy. We're so happy to talk to you today. <laughs> you too, very much so. Yeah, me and Sarah, this is Krista. I had um, We had a great conversation a few weeks back and excited for you to meet Lindsay, who's my co-host. I know we talked about her. I know. I'm so I'm so excited to have you on, Sarah. And thank you so oh, much. cool. Nice to meet you, Lindsay. Nice to meet you as well. Um, we've just been having conversations, especially as of late, with a bunch of our listeners who have been going through transitions with their career and and really finding what lights them up. And it, this just feels so relevant. So we're yeah. excited. Cool. So glad. I mean, it's so relevant for the people I work with too. Mm. Oh yeah. Like t- transition all the time. Would you, we'd love for to, to pull it back. So how do you, first question, how do you introduce yourself to a stranger and explain who you are and what you do? And then I'd love to hear a little bit more about the journey that brought you to the place where you are now. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I tell people I'm a career coach Mm -hmm. and if they want to know more about that, I actually tell them I'm a very specific kind of career coach and I help people figure out what they want so they can finally quit jobs they hate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a really specific kind of work I do. Um, there are strategy coaches, which are awesome for people who already know what they want, but there's so many people who frankly are like feeling lost as fuck about what they want. And those are my peeps. Yeah. And those are a lot of our listeners. I mean, those are me half the time too. Mm -hmm. Um, So what brought you to the place where you feel so passionate about this and and you speak to this and you help people go through this? Because I feel like a lot of times um, experts in this space come from a place that's highly emotionally charged that leads them to help others. So what brought you to becoming a coach? It's a it's a personal thing. So I actually used to be a professor of workplace psychology, organizational behavior, and I hated 
academia so much that I actually ended up having a breakdown. Um, and it was then that I realized I had to make some changes and move from working on this kind of thing in like a theoretical, very removed way and move into helping actual people with actual problems. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been interested in workplace psychology, though. And like, ironically, when I was working as a professor, I was teaching, you know, workplace psychology, including things like workplace happiness and commitment and all that. And I was becoming more and more miserable with a large chunk of my work. Like when you work as a professor, about 80% of your job is conducting research. And I hated that part. Mm. Loved teaching, hated conducting research. Because it's solo, because it's analytical, because it's... Well, what did you hate about so that? Isolating. Mm. It was so boring. Um, I didn't feel like I was working on anything that actually mattered. Um, it also didn't feel real. There's this like weird language that people use in academia that's so far removed from anything that has actual meaning. Um, yeah, I just hated so many elements of it. I loved teaching, but that was only twenty percent of the job, and I didn't only want to be happy twenty percent mm. of the time. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the breakdown? Like what, What? because I feel like there's a lot of women who, you know, were in a position like you where they only like 20% of their job and they're feeling stuck and um, they know there's something greater. But what would a breakdown look like that would make you turn to, that would turn into action? You know, so what's that difference and what was that differentiator for you? Yeah, so... Here's exactly what happened. I had a breakdown in the middle of a crowded Starbucks. Mm. And it's like we're all good time. breakdowns happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who hasn't had a breakdown at Starbucks, Same. right? Um, <laughs> I was I was switching from working on um, preparing some, some lecture notes to prepare for a class that week that I was teaching. And I was switching to work on my research. And I think... So I had been miserable in the work for about two years, and I swear, I think I had just had it. Like, it was a last straw moment. I just snapped, and I couldn't do it anymore. So, like, I didn't see it coming, actually. I knew I was unhappy, but I did not think I was, like, going to have a breakdown. It just mm. sort of happened. Um and, like, have you ever had one of those experiences where you're sort of, like, you feel like you're hovering over your own body and, like, mm -hmm. watching what's happening? Mm -hmm. That's what it actually felt like. Um, and I actually ended up giving notice the very next day. And it was immediate relief. I mean, I kept my teaching post for another four months, but I felt better immediately. I mean, at the time I was already getting some training to become a coach, but I really didn't plan to do it until probably a year or two later. Um, so it was very sudden. It was very shocking, uh, very discombobulating and awful and exactly what I needed. Yeah. Did the breakdown like just kind of shed any sort of like hesitation or fear? Like you said, you just went in the next day and and put your notice in. I, I don't, I, I feel like so many people spend so much time delaying that, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Well, what if I can't pay my bills? Well, mm -hmm. what if, you know, I get a promotion and it gets better? Well, what if, you know, so do you feel, do you, did you feel like there was like zero fear in that moment? No, uh, tons of fear, oh. but like, I, I didn't care. Oh, um, okay. so it's not like I wasn't afraid. It just wasn't worth it anymore. If mm. that makes sense. Sure. Um, 
So I had spent about two years convincing myself that I had to finish this PhD that I hated and had to continue on this track in academia. Mm. And um, my particular brand of fear was, what will people think? Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask, who yeah. are you? Who are you finishing that degree for? You know what I mean? Finishing it for like mostly strangers or like acquaintances who I thought might think I was stupid Mm. or didn't work hard enough or uh, X, Y, and Z. Um, And the truth is some people did think I was crazy and most people were supportive. And a lot of people like just straight up didn't care. They're all caught up in their own stuff, right? Like it's so funny how we think – you know, everybody's going to have an opinion about what we're doing, but everybody's always caught up in their own stuff. So very rarely do people actually even care. Literally. And I think as you get older, yeah. people care less and less because they're more wrapped up in their own stuff than than totally. ever before. I was thinking yeah, so. Yeah, it's like walking into a party and you're like, oh my God, I hope nobody notices that I like spilled on my shirt and everyone else is just worried about like what they look like and yep. what they're acting like. They're worried about what they yeah. spilled on their own shirt, pretty much. Exactly. <laughs> so I feel like it's interesting too. So you were, for two years, you were unhappy and you weren't, you know, loving what you were doing. And I feel like a lot of people um, operate at a place with their job where they believe that you are are not supposed to like it and they operate at a level of unhappiness that they're used to and that becomes their just the level um, that they just live their lives at. So at what point would you say that someone should be so unhappy that they need to make a complete change or do you believe that you can love every part of your job? You can love every part of your job, but it's not going to happen every single minute of every day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, you're going to have bad days no matter what you're doing. I still have frustrations and, you know, bad days occasionally. And I love my work now. Um, so it's not about um, having like a unicorn existence all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you like by and large, your work should actually feel good, which is why I named my company Career Gasm. Like, I really do think your work should feel good most of the time. But you know, if you're consistently feeling bad about your work, it's almost like sometimes I know for myself and for a lot of the people I've worked with, there are stages you go through when things get progressively worse. Yeah. Like sometimes it's just like, oh, like the day feels really long. And then you start to have, you know, the Sunday night dread, right? Like, oh my God, I've got to gear myself up for another week of work that I'm going to hate. And then sometimes you come home from work and you're not sure why you don't have any energy in your life anymore. Like it feels mm-hmm. like you don't really have a pulse. Like, for evenings and weekends anymore. And I actually work with a lot of people when things get really bad who have like illnesses and injuries and physiological, physical problems, things that are showing up in their body. It's like the psychological stress is manifesting in their body. That actually used to happen to me all the time. My back is like a barometer for my mental health. And so very often if something is really starting to go wrong in my life, Um, because I haven't mastered the art of really being in tune with myself all the time, very often it's my body that will trigger something and I'll be like, oh, my back went out. Something must be wrong. Hmm. So interesting. I think like our generation, we um, look at our parents and I think our parents 
at least a majority, you know, started having kids relatively young um, and just felt like, okay, I need to make enough money to support a family and I'll do whatever it takes. And whether that means sacrificing my happiness um, and just going through painful, uncomfortable situations forever and ever, you know, in order to make money to support the family. So I think growing up with that, you know, I, I had it in my head or I have it in my head sometimes where, you know, it should be difficult and and I should be sacrificing. And one of those things that I sacrifice would be happiness or I, I'm better about it now, but I think our generation kind of struggles with that where work is, you know, whatever, it's a pain, it's painful, it's hard, it's a struggle, but as long as I make enough money to live and support my family, then okay. Then like, that's a good balance, you know? And I, I think it's super destructive. Um, I mean, I've see a parent, my parent, my dad doing that. And it's just, you can't maintain it. I see it in him physically, you know, ailing him. So like, what do you, what do you, how do you speak to like our generation when we have that as an example? And how do you kind of like wake people, wake them up to see yeah. that, you know what I mean? It's like before you start that family, like how do you kind of establish that and put into perspective that maybe their dreams are going to take time and it's not going to be you know, totally financially fruitful at first, but totally worth it. Yeah. So first of all, I really relate to your story because I have also sort of, for most of my life, sort of believed in the thought, you know, for something to be of value, it has to be hard. And, you know, sometimes we absorb messages from society. Sometimes it's from our parents. But as we grow up, we just sort of internalize these messages that we don't even really examine. And so that's one of the ones that I was sort of programmed with as well. In order for something to be of value, it has to be hard or life is hard or work is supposed to be hard. And one of the things I think that can be most valuable, no matter who you are, or what you're struggling with is actually examining your thoughts. Um, do you ever watch one of those um, TV networks where it's like the news on, but there's like a little ticker tape at the bottom with like the stock exchange or whatever, just sort of like rolling by in the background. Yeah. I think our thoughts are like that too. And so it's like, they're always, always, always running through the subconscious, but until you actually point to them, it's almost like you don't even notice they're there because it's not the main event. So if you're running thoughts like that constantly, and these are just things you've absorbed as a human in the world, um, it's actually calling a lot of the shots in your life. And one of the best things I ever did when I got my coach training was to start examining my own thoughts so that I could start helping other people examine their thoughts too. And the truth is, if you, if you continue to believe certain things, they will direct your behavior. And so I think the first step for those of us who grew up with parents who worked hard or told us certain messages that are sort of feeling a little bit oppressive is to start examining those thoughts because those thoughts were given to you um, and you don't have to keep them. Mm. So it's hard work yeah. and it doesn't happen overnight, but it's a really, really worthy pursuit. It's changed my life. It's helping me help other people change their lives. Um, so it's really, really worth it. It's uncomfortable though. It's interesting to think about to Lindsay's point and to, you know, your explanation, the differences between between the generations. And I can imagine for you as a coach that when you're dealing with someone that's of our parents' generation, so my 
parents are in their 50s and 60s, and then you're dealing with someone of our generation being in your 20s and 30s, what different challenges you have as a coach to kind of help them overcome. Can you talk about the differences between those and kind of what you do to help them through those um, ideas they have about their career? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. So I actually work with people in both of these categories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are some real differences in how people think about their work. So very often, um, people of our generation, like people around the age, you know, like late 20s, 30s, like, um, very often the thought is, I don't want to be as unhappy as my parents. People love their parents, but very, like a lot of people see the grind and the things that their parents have had to do and they just don't want to sign up for that kind of life so it's almost like learning the lesson before it happens um just because they they don't want to um to be as unhappy and for the people who are older in their you know 50s and 60s that I'm working with they actually have a lot of regret for not making changes Mm. sooner um, a lot of people I work with, it's almost like it's interesting because there's urgency for both groups. So for people like, let's say, you know, I, I actually see a lot of people right before they turn 30. There's something around the age 30. Where Saturn think, return. I've yeah. got to get my <laughs> shit together. Um, and so like there seems to be an urgency like right around every decade shift, but especially around 30. But for the people who are older, there's a different kind of urgency because they're thinking, fuck, I've got 10 years left in my career. I have hated everything up until now. This is my last chance to get it together and build a life that actually feels good for me while I still can. Um, So yeah, there's some differences in the mindsets, but also a little bit of overlap. And for the folks who are of our generation, it's, it's, it's tough because they've they've sort of had this very unfair um, assumption placed on them that you know they're entitled and though they just want to have it all they don't want to work hard mm-hmm. and it's not true at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just sort of a priorities shift and I think people of this generation just aren't willing to live a life just slogging it out because that's what people have done before and I actually think that's a really good thing. It makes a career and a life hard to navigate when you have strong convictions and very strong boundaries about what you will and won't do. But I think it's a really worthy pursuit. Yeah, Mm. I love that. And I think that is interesting. So that's exactly our audience of people is in their 20s, you know, approaching 30. That's almost 30 is about kind of that period in time in your life. And that's a lot of the reason why we started the podcast, because we feel like there is such a big push to figure things out as we approach our 30s and really... um, lay the groundwork for a successful life in the future. So I can totally see why a lot of women come to you during this, this time. Mm, Yeah. Big time. What are, um, what are some of like maybe top three, top five, um, things or thoughts, um, or habits that you see paralyzing your clients, like in their pursuit of their dream career? A lot of people pretend they don't know what they want. Mm. That's interesting. <laughs> I'll tell you Good why. One. It's, yeah, people pretend they don't know what they want because often it's scarier than admitting it because when you admit what you want, you're suddenly on the hook to go after it. So very often when I start working with people, um, you know, they really do feel like they don't know what they want, 
but we discover what it is very quickly. So there's a part of them that knows um, that's usually just repressed. And I think I think they're afraid to admit what they want because then suddenly the problem shifts from, well, now I'm afraid I can't have it. Right. Mm. It goes from the problem being, I don't know what I want to, okay. So um, all of a sudden you have clarity. Then the next issue is, oh shit, now I'm afraid I can't have it. Like I actually have to work for this. Um, so that's one. Another thing that gets in people's way is not actually examining like their personal baggage and hangups. Um, so I'll just be really transparent here. Like one of my personal things that I have to work on all the time is stuff like uh, people pleasing, approval seeking, perfectionism. I care far too much what people think about me. And that causes me a lot of grief in my life, like in my career, in my life. And so, you know, for me and for other people like me or other people who have other issues, um, if you don't actually examine that stuff and try to work on it as well as move towards your career goals, you're going to end up actually sabotaging whatever's next. So even if you move from a shit job to something that has the potential to be amazing, you don't want to sabotage it with all of your personal baggage because Mm -hmm. it's not like our careers are separate from our personal lives. Like we bring ourselves and all of our baggage to everything in our lives including our careers. So if you're someone who's like oversensitive or a total control freak or like an approval seeker like me, that stuff can really sabotage your career. So I kind of like to think of making a career change or like moving in your career, even just navigating your career as two parallel tracks. One track is figuring out what you want and how to go after it. And the other track is actually figuring out your stuff and getting out of your own way. So that's another one. Mm, I love those. Yeah. Are you mainly working with creatives or is it just kind of anyone? I'm working with everybody. Yeah. It's really surprising. I'm a really creative person and I'm a little bit edgy. So I kind of thought that I would be working mostly with creatives who are like kind of like counterculture, like anti-corporate. And like I work with accountants, like I work with people Mm. in finance, but I also work with creative directors and I work with artists. It's a real mixed bag. The thing that unites everybody I work with is they're really, really frustrated and they feel really lost because Mm. they they don't know what they want. It's really hard to leave your shit job if you don't know what you're moving towards, right? Do you find that those uh, people you work with in corporate America, in finance and whatever, are at their core creative people that were kind of pushed into that career, whether themselves or someone else or just circumstances? Yes and no. So I think creativity is one of those words that you could ask a hundred different people what it Mm. means and people would say something different. So one mistake I think people make is that we make creativity mean artistry, right? And we think that those two are the same thing. But like I work with a lot of people who are very creative and like really like outside of the box, very unconventional thinkers. So they're like creative problem solvers. And that's not what people would typically think of as creative. So Mm. I tend to think we're all creative as humans. It's a part of being human, but we're, we're, we're a little bit 
different, each of us, in terms of how we're creative. So I think it's a mistake to assume that creativity means artistry. It's not necessarily the same thing. That's just one form of creativity. Um, But I will tell you, some people want to work in creative fields and do and some people like don't like some people for example I had a woman recently who um was working for a PR firm and she was working as a publicist and she's on her way to becoming an accountant now because there was too much creative pressure and she doesn't like the pressure of being creative all the time so it Mm. goes both ways so her dream career is an accountant yes huh Love yeah. That. How about yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. You we know, need them. Really we need them. Yeah. No such, <laughs> there's no such thing as like um, a bad job necessarily, so but true. there are bad fits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So what would you say for a, for someone that is in their career and they're unhappy? What would you say? What, what do you suggest for them is the first thing that they do? If they want to make a change. I'm a big fan of clarity before stress. It's going to take a few times to get it right. In their career, is they usually do the scramble do, doing the job search. Like, oh my God, I got to get it here. I'm yeah. just going to like look for everything. I'm just like, let me look at that job postings. And they sort of panic and just look for a bunch of stuff without any sort of clarity about what they're looking for, which uh, like, first of all, is not an effective job search at all. Yeah. And it's also super frustrating because you don't even know what you're looking for. So I actually have everyone I work with press pause on strategy which is really hard to do when you hate your job so that they can take a little bit of time for clarity so figuring out what matters to them i another thing that really helps i think there's way too much pressure on needing to know the exact dream job title right away yeah like how are you supposed to know that if you're lost right so i'm a big fan of just working with what I call career ingredients, like what you want more of and what you want less of. So let's say um, you do a lot of administrative work and you really hate that. And so on your, you know, ingredients list, ingredients you want less of, less administrative work, less repetitive tasks. Maybe you want to do something more creative or something that has a little less structure and a little bit more freedom. Um, And it doesn't even just have to be related to work tasks. It can be things about your work environment. Like I know for me, I really need like to see light in my workday. I'm not someone who could work like in an office with no windows or like in a place with like totally crappy lighting. I'm actually really impacted by my surroundings. Mm. So one of the things on my ingredients list is like, there's got to be a natural light or I'm going to hate my life for eight hours a day. Um, And people can start compiling these little lists of the things that they want more of and things that they want less of. It's a good place to start. And usually the list... I love that. And I feel like I've experienced that in my career is doing more of the ingredients. And because with the ingredients, you're not going to know what you're going to bake or what you're going to create. You don't really know the end package. I feel like a lot of people start with the end result. So they start with whatever they're the the cake and they don't go backwards and look at all the ingredients that go into making that or whatever you're trying to make. Like people go with the title, like you said, or they go with the company, but really they don't know if all the ingredients or that they need for that are going to go within that. Mm. Yeah. And also there's a real danger in 
inadvertently inviting in some things that drive you crazy if you're also not clear about what you don't want. So I think there's real value in articulating not only what you do want, but also what you don't want so that you don't make the mistake of inviting that stuff into the next phase of your career. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And then for women that were have a have a calling, but they want to be they want to start their own business. Like, what would you tell someone that has that wants to start their own business and be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I'm a big fan of the slow build. Um, for a few reasons. One, I think entrepreneurship is way over glamorized. And yeah. I think for those of us who are entrepreneurs, um, we should be sharing more. And I try to do this, but I'm not perfect at it. Um, we should be sharing more about like, you know, the occasional shit day or like just the mundane like email day or whatever mm-hmm. versus like hashtag laptops on the beach and blessed all the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so a little more transparency about what it's actually like would do people a world of good. But for people who are working like a traditional nine to five and want to start their own biz, I'm a big fan of the slow build because there's a lot of kinks to work out when you first start your own business. So I was a side hustler when I started my business. So I was working as a professor and I built my business on the side and I'm really glad I did that because Mm. I actually kind of hated the first brand that I had created for myself and it was really corporate and um, kind of stuffy because I thought a career coach had to be a certain way and so I just sort of tried to fit myself in the mold and it felt awful. I actually ended up Mm. attracting clients that I hated. Mm. Um, Did you kill them? (laughs) I burned it to the ground after five months and started over and created career orgasm Mm. and things have been so much better but I had the time to do that Mm. before I had all the pressure of needing my income to come from it. Yeah. And also like it's such a huge learning curve to start a business and you know no matter what kind of business you're starting whether you're selling products or whether you have some sort of service it takes time to start making money. Mm. Um and because we don't talk about money too much in public it's people have sort of this guessing game about when they're going to start making money and for everyone it's a bit different for when you start making money. So until you're in the business for a while and you can see the trajectory of how you're doing, sometimes it's kind of dangerous to leave before you're ready. Yeah. And and I'm a big supporter too of keeping your day job while you're fostering the the business or your side hustle. What are your thoughts on going all in for as an entrepreneur, if you wanted to do your passion or um, keeping your day job and then fostering your side business on the, on the side? It's such a personal decision. I think once Mm -hmm. you know the business is doing well, and if it's something you want to do all the time, then go all in. It's always going to feel risky when you do it. It felt risky for me when I did it. It feels risky for my clients when they do it. And everybody chooses a different time to jump in. So some people jump in like, you know, with both feet and, you know, quit their job like six months in, a year in. For some people, it's two years. It's a bit different for everybody. It also depends, like, how much time you're actually able to work on the business outside of your nine to five. You have to be realistic. You can't be comparing yourself to people who are doing it full time, thinking that you're falling behind or something, Mm. because maybe you're only able to devote, like, 10 hours a week to it while everyone else is devoting 40. What has your been your experience with um, the women you work with and their place in the workplace among men? Like, do you do you feel like you have to 
um, are they are are they stepping in as more? We talked about this on a, a previous podcast, like more masculine energy, trying to be that powerful, successful employee, or is it along the other end of they're kind of stepping back and like letting things come to them and kind of letting the guys like run the show? Like, what has been your experience? I see both, you know, for, so I actually have a pretty masculine energy myself. So, um, I push hard for things. I definitely ask for what I want. Um, but as every woman knows, there's double standards for asserting yourself in the workplace. So Mm -hmm. when we, as women do it, there's a lot of pushback and we're expected to do it in a quote, nice way. And so there's all these crazy double standards we have to, to manage, which makes it really tough on the flip side. I work with so many women who are afraid to ask for what they want, but also have a real a real hard time with boundaries, and mm. not just with their work, but also in their personal lives. They're, you know, staying later at work. They're doing whatever their family member asks of them. They're just doing the obligations that life and work puts in front of them without really asserting where they want those boundaries to be. And for a lot of the women I work with, it is it's harder for us than it is for men to assert our boundaries because of the way we've been socialized. Basically, women, including our generation, more so with our parents' generation, but ours as well, we've been socialized with the message, the most important thing is to make everyone else comfortable. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing is to be liked. And it's really hard to set boundaries when you've grown up with that. I know I've struggled with it. Um, I've worked on it a lot. Again, still working on it. Um, But a lot of the women I work with struggle with that, both in their personal lives and at work. How do you help them set boundaries? Like, how would you coach someone on how to do that? We always start with baby steps. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, I was working with someone this week, and um, she's she tends to be pretty self-critical if she doesn't have a home run right away, mm-hmm. but she also has trouble with boundaries. So... Um, and this is this is like a one-two punch that a lot of us women have. I know I I have this one-two punch too. It's like you're self-critical and you have trouble with boundaries, and that can make things really complicated. And so she just wanted to make sure that she wasn't being taken advantage of in terms of the amount of time that she was expected to work. Um, and so we sort of treated it like a little experiment where she like didn't have to make a big deal about it, but she just had to say no without giving an explanation. So there wasn't like a big meeting she had to have. It didn't have to be a confrontation. She just had to say something like, I'm sorry, I'm not available. Like, Mm. that's it. Very often setting a boundary, that's literally all you have to do. Um, But it was a baby step and we always work with baby steps because sometimes if you expect too much of yourself and it's too big of a stretch from the way you usually behave, if it kind of crash and burns, which is okay when you're learning a new a new behavior or a new way of being, sometimes it does crash and burn, but you don't want to beat yourself up for it mm-hmm. and start feeling like a failure because you're new at setting boundaries and you didn't knock it out of the park on that first try. So with any sort of behavior change or even changing the way you think, I'm a huge fan of the teensiest baby steps and also trying to be really, really kind with yourself. Yeah, it's, I mean... It's hard. I think practicing patience, especially for our generation, is difficult. You know, we want everything right now. And knowing that, you know, the letting go of a timeline usually helps to align a lot of things, at least in my life, just letting go of 
having this done by, you know, two years from now or accomplishing this by August, you know, just letting that go and kind of letting um, the creativity, the energy and the passion for it flow and, and ebb and flow. Sometimes, like you said, you have good days and you have not so good days, but being okay with that and really loving that human part of the process. I think is like difficult, but also yeah, the best part. Yeah, and if you part. don't love it, like at least soften your judgment towards it, right? Mm. So I'm, I'm sort of the way I'm wired is to be fairly self-critical. So this is something I've struggled with too. And it's interesting you mentioned this 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 time thing and this timeline thing because something I just started doing about well, it was uh, about six months ago. I just decided I wanted to renegotiate my relationship relationship with time. And um, I too was cramming a lot of work and goals into really kind of like an unreasonable timeline. And that sets you up for failure every time, as I'm sure you know. Mm. (laughs) Um, It's really frustrating. And so I just decided, okay, instead of treating time as the enemy, I'm going to choose it as a collaborator. And what's reasonable for me to, to you know, if I'm treating time like a collaborator, what's a reasonable collaboration here to keep me happy? And, like, what can I actually do in a given set of time? Because um, I think a lot of us, and especially us women, um, and especially women of this generation, we're trying to do a lot. And we're trying to do it in a timeline that is straight up crazy pants. Um, like, not even humanly possible. And uh, that makes for a really stressful life and really frustrating. And also, it means that you miss all of the wins. If you're always worried about the fact that you didn't get, you know, let's say there's five things you wanted to accomplish and you only did four, we tend to focus on the one, the one timeline that fell short. I think we're missing a lot of wins. Yeah. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So much sense. I was thinking about just one more question before we talk about the book. For the babes that want to make a change in their career, so they know what they want to do, they want to make that change, what are some steps you tell them or what what advice do you give them if they want to make that career shift? Best piece of advice, hands down, that I can give people if they know what they want to do and to start making it is to talk to people doing the actual work. I think because we live in the age of social media, right? So we see people doing interesting things that we want to do, but we see the social media versions of it. So you have to reach out to people in real life and talk to them about the work. And it's not an okay excuse to say, oh, well, I don't know anyone who's a accountant or publicist or author or whatever. You have to reach out to strangers. Um, Most strangers will say no. But some will say yes when you ask to talk to them, Mm. if you approach them in the right way. So you have to cast your net really wide um, and know that rejection is a part of it. And if people say no or even don't get back to you, it's not personal. People Mm -hmm. have lives. But there's nothing like getting real information from people doing the actual work. It's like if you want to jump from this ship you're in into something else, I think talking to people who are doing the work is kind of like inspecting the lifeboat for holes. It's like before. Before you make the jump, you want to make sure that it's going to be safe, that it'll sustain you, and that your assumptions about what it's going to be like are what it's actually like. Yeah, I think that is so key. I know I have a few friends here, my friend Ryan and my friend Erica, they both did a bunch of coffee dates with women. They 
probably did 10 to 15 when they moved to LA and Mm -hmm. women were more than willing to meet with them and more than willing to like chat with them and share their stories. And it's been instrumental for them in their career. So I definitely think that um, that is such sound advice. And I think it's super important. Super important. It's the most important thing. Yeah, I love that. Um, so tell us about Careergasm, the book. We got it. Me and Lindsay did. We're reading it yeah, now. But tell so our, excited for you. Tell our listeners about it. Tell our listeners what a careergasm is. We'd love to hear more. <laughs> careergasm happens when your work feels good. Um, and like other forms of gasms, it does take some work to get there. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but your work really should feel good most of the time. And Career Goes in the Book came about because, like, I've been working with people on this stuff for years now, about four years, and there are just some real themes um, that I wanted to share with people and a lot of stories about people who have made big changes, and my story's in there, too. I saw a lot of books on careers that seemed really boring to me, frankly. Um, I know there's a lot of great books out there, but I would walk into the business section, and I would be like, oh my god, kill me now, there's another person in a blazer, like, telling me what I should do. (laughs) Um, Like, it's a lot of, like, 10 steps to success and just follow this formula plan and it's kind of someone lecturing you from the mountaintop Mm -hmm. and I found all of that deeply uninspiring Um, and there were a lot of how-to books so a lot of books for people who know what they want so a lot of books about Mm -hmm. like resumes and networking and you know um, great for people who know what they want and I wasn't seeing a lot for people who felt lost like there's not a lot out there for people who hate their jobs but don't know what they want and that's what this book is it's a book specifically to you know a little bit to help you start doing it and a little bit to help you get out of your own way so you remember I said that your career is like kind of parallel tracks one is figuring out what you want and the other is getting out of your own way there's a lot of personal development stuff in here too so like things like addressing your fear addressing your hang-ups talking about resistance uh there's a whole section on money with all the money fear we carry around yeah, it's um, it's like everything that I would have wanted to know if I was lost. Mm, I love that. Now, how is the process of writing a book? What is mm-hmm. that like for you? Oh my gosh. So uh, I didn't actually know I was writing a book when I started writing. Um, I thought maybe I was writing a couple of blog posts and I just kept writing and writing and writing. And I realized, oh, I have a lot to say on this. And there's a lot of stories and a lot of things to share. And so um, I just sort of wrote it like for a couple of years alongside working with my clients full time. And it just sort of turned into this book. And I think that's probably why it feels warm and cheeky and informal because it was very informal to start. And I didn't even really know it was going to be this big book thing. Mm, That's amazing. I love that. I love that. So I know our listeners are going to find so much and get so much out of this interview. Um, where can where can they find you and connect with you? I know you're on so many different platforms, but where can they where can they connect with you? They can find me at careergasm.com 
and uh, Instagram and Twitter at Careergasm. And actually at Careergasm.com, there's a free course that people can take to help them start thinking about what they want. Um, And actually, I think we're going to give one of your listeners um, Mm -hmm. a copy of my $400 course, the big one. Yes. Um, Yeah, it's called Careergasm, a course for discovering your calling. So you can tell them how to do that. However, you have someone win, but they can get that at Careergasm.com too. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that course? Yeah, that course is it's very similar to the book in that it helps people figure out what they want, but it takes them really deep with some thoughtful and super unconventional exercises for figuring out what they want. So like forget about like the boring aptitude test you took in high school or like whatever you did with your guidance counselor. These are sort of cheeky, hilarious, very unconventional questions to think about to help you figure out what you want. So amazing. I love that. They're going to be so excited. So amazing. So guys, stay tuned for that. We'll keep you posted on how we're going to run that. But um, And then Careergasm, the book, where can they pick that up? It's literally everywhere. So it's on Amazon. It's on iTunes. It's at Barnes & Noble uh, here in Canada. It's at like Chapters, Indigo, Indie Stores. It's everywhere right now. Yeah, perfect. So cool. Love that. Congratulations. Yeah, congrats. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. We love you so much. We know on the weekend it's always a little tough to to do this type of thing, but we are so grateful that you made the time. Oh, no, I'm so happy to do it. I got to say, I really, really like your vibe. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Thanks. We're so happy to be connected. Um, We'll keep in touch. And thanks so much, Sarah. (laughs) Thank you. Take care, guys. Bye. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. (laughs) Feel better now you're